0: If you turn in your Bibles this morning, our study will come from the book of Mark, Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, the gospel of Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. We've been studying through the gospel of Mark, and Mark is a very fast-moving book, He summarizes a lot of incidences, and we have seen the last time we were here in the book of Mark, the incredible power of the Lord Jesus Christ over nature by commanding the Sea of Galilee to be stilled during a storm, and then commanding thousands of demons who possessed a man in Gerizim to depart, exercising and freeing him from demonic possession. And now he comes back across to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And we continue our account in verse 21 of the book of Mark, chapter 5, verse 21. The scriptures read, When Jesus had crossed over again, in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him verse 25 A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all but rather had grown worse after hearing about Jesus she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak for she thought if i just touch his garments i Will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman. had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, the people loudly weeping and wailing, and entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but it is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha? kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we have studied before, the power of your Son to still the storm on the sea, commanding the wind and the waves. The power of your Son to cast out thousands of demons, causing them even to bow at his feet. And now the power of your Son to heal completely, and to raise the dead to life. Father, we pray, open our eyes that we might see great and wonderful things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a pastor from South Carolina who passed away about three years ago in 2016. His name was Ed Salmon. And the following story was told about Him, I think he probably wrote it, an account. He said, just yesterday, I went out for lunch. When I got to Forest Park, there's usually a homeless man or two standing there. And there was this terribly disheveled man standing there with his sign, I'm homeless. And of course, he was going by the cars, And nobody looked at him. He got to my car, and I rolled down the window. And I said, I don't have any money with me, but my wife is going to take me to the airport in about an hour and a half, and I'll have something for you then. Do you know what he said to me? He said, thank you for looking at me didn't say a word about money. simply said, thank you for looking at me. You know, God has granted to us the blessings of knowing Jesus, our Savior, the blessings of being a light in a world that is so very dark. And he's given to us the commission to look and to be able to see With eyes of compassion, those that have needs. And they may just say, thank you for even looking at me. For oftentimes we pass by, we're so busy in our own little world. Tasks, things to do, people to see, places to go, kids to cart around, activities to go to, shopping to do, whatever it might be, and we forget the people around us that have needs. We fail to see with eyes of compassion, and today the text tells us about Jesus, who had a place to go, who had an important person to follow, whose important person was this very daughter who is dying. And yet, with eyes of compassion, not just for the rich, but also for the poor, he sees this woman, and he knows that he is going to minister to her because she is also special. The passage today is about Jesus who looks through eyes of compassion all the time upon us, upon others, with impartiality. This is a story that is two stories, actually, two accounts, one that is sandwiched in between the other for a purpose. It's two accounts. It's about a man about a woman, one who was very much respected in the community, one who was very much rejected in the community, one who was wealthy, one who was poor, one who was honored by the people, one who was ashamed and shunned by the people, one who was clean one who was considered ceremonially unclean, one who led the synagogue, and this woman could not even enter the synagogue because of her condition for 12 years. But both of them would experience the power and the compassion of Jesus because God exhibits that impartially to all who would come to him. Now, immediately before these incidences, as I've already shared to you, Jesus had performed some of the greatest displays of his power yet within this book. He had commanded the wind and the waves to stop as they were on the Sea of Galilee in the protection for the very first time of his disciples. And then they went and went to the other side, the eastern side of the shore, and there was a man who was demonically possessed by thousands of demons whom Jesus cast out. You would have expected the people on that shore to say, come, stay. We want to know more about you to welcome him. But they didn't. They didn't. They wanted him to leave. He taught us that no matter what the display of power might be from the Lord Jesus himself, that the hardened heart will not turn unless God opens that heart. The people in the nearby towns wanted him to leave. So he came back to the other side. That's what this text says tells us he goes back because there is another appointment that God has provided for him, a meeting with a synagogue official and a meeting with a bleeding woman. And so that is where we pick up the text here in verse 21. It tells us, first of all, about this official, this despairing official. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. Jesus had crossed back again to the other side. This would be the western side of the Sea of Galilee. This would be probably in Capernaum, once again, where he had come. There was a massive crowd there. You remember when he left previously to go to the eastern side, there was a massive crowd that was already following him. And now there was likely the part of massive crowd that had already been waiting and waiting for Jesus to come back. Massive crowds often followed Jesus. You remember in chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus was in a house, and they were so packed in, there was no room, even for his mother and his brothers to come who were looking for him to get to him. There was no room for even this, this man who was lame to come and be healed by him, so his friends dug a hole in the roof. You recall, too, in chapter 3, verse 20, Mark tells us that the crowd gathered to such an extent that Jesus and his disciples could not even eat a meal So the Bible tells us once again, the massive crowd had gathered and he was by the seashore. And what Jesus would do was he would climb into a boat and push out a little ways so that there would be a natural separation between he and the crowd and he'd be able to teach and the placid waters that would be there would help in the amplification of his voice so others could hear so they wouldn't be so pressed along with him. But here he was on the seashore on the other side. And it tells us in the text that one of the synagogue officials came named Jairus, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. This was one of the officials of the synagogue. This wasn't one of the Sadducees. The Sadducees kept themselves pretty much by the temple. They ran the temple business, bilking the people out of their money. Then there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones who were more popular among the people. This man was not either of those. Typically, there were individuals... There were individuals who were officials who ran the synagogue. And you might recall, a synagogue only required 10 men in order to form a synagogue. Likely in Capernaum, there were more than 10, so perhaps it was a larger synagogue. But typically, within the synagogue, you had about three to seven officials. And these three to seven officials would run the business of the synagogue. What they would do is they would run the services, they would take care of the synagogue uh, scrolls, they would take care of the synagogue facilities. They would be the ones who would teach. Uh, those who would have the those who would come for education. They would be the ones who would pray. They would take care of the business of everything that local synagogue needed to take care of. So this synagogue official was an important individual. An individual who was well known among the Jewish community. And for him to come. For him to come to Jesus and cast himself before Jesus was very, very telling. Because no doubt, by this time as we had already looked, the conflict with the religious leaders of that day had reached its pinnacle in them accusing Jesus of being possessed by Satan himself. You might recall that that is what had happened. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a vitriolic hatred towards Jesus. They resented him. They wanted him dead. But this very important man, A leader in the synagogue, a leader of the Jewish people, one who was respected in a position of power, in a position of influence, in the religious establishment, comes and falls down before Jesus. It would have shocked the people. The word there is to to prostrate oneself. Proskuneo, he casts him down. It was a position of worship. Before Jesus, and he pleads with Jesus. He pleads with Jesus, and this is his plea. It says in the text, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. This man, there's nothing in the text that would say that he was skeptical, that he was doubtful, any sort of animosity. No, this individual, this man, this synagogue leader believed in what Jesus could do. Perhaps he was one of the synagogue officials back in chapter 2 when Jesus went in the synagogue when he first came to Capernaum. Do you remember what happened? There was a demonically possessed man that came, that came into the synagogue, and Jesus cast that demon out. Perhaps he was one of those that witnessed or for sure he had heard About what Jesus had done, who Jesus was, no doubt. Now, his daughter is desperately, desperately sick to the point of death, and he pleads with Jesus to come. Mark chapter 5, verse 42, it tells us his daughter is 12 years old. Daughter is just 12 years old, right at the cusp of entering into. A young womanhood establishing in that culture, they would uh, establish families early, they would get married early, they'd have their own families, their future lay ahead of them. Here's his daughter wouldn't possibly, perhaps, experience any of that because she was sick and she was dying. Sicknesses that are life threatening are always, always difficult to face, but they're even more difficult when one who is ill and faced with death as a child, and extremely difficult if it's your own child. And I'm sure that Jairus, like any other parent, would have done anything, would have done anything they could, give up his own life, if he very well could, to save his daughter. And you can imagine to yourself the desperation of this father, this desperation and the anxiety Jairus must have felt probably with the masses of crowds pushing his way up to the front among thousands of people who had come and crowded in Jesus. And no doubt these thousands of people had people who were sick too, people who were lame, people who were ill, people who were possessed, people who needed help, whatever it may be. And Jairus comes as a synagogue official pushing his way to the front and begging and pleading for Jesus to come, lay his hands on his desperately sick daughter to heal her. Jesus... He responds. The text says, he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressed in on him. You can imagine what Jairus must have felt. The anxiety that filled his heart was now filled with perhaps anticipation with excitement because Jesus was going to come. Jesus was going to come to his house. Out of all of these thousands of people, Jesus was going to come and heal his daughter, and he didn't want to leave Jesus, and he made sure that he, Jesus wasn't out of sight or whatever it might be. Jesus followed him. The crowd did too. We cut to the next scene in which we meet a woman, a desperate woman, just as Jairus was desperate, so was this woman. Verse 25. This woman, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years, it says, had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather grown worse. This woman, economically, positionally, physically, ceremonially, was the complete opposite Socioeconomically and religiously, different than Jairus. The cards had been stacked against her for many, many years. First of all, she had this bleeding issue. She was bleeding. There's a medical term for this bleeding issue. It's thought that she had what is called obstetric fistula. Some four one million women, I've heard, have it in Africa today can be cured by surgery. Of course, that was not available to her. But Leviticus 15, verses 25 to 27, tell us what happens if a woman has a bleeding issue. If a woman has a bleeding issue, they are considered un. Clean. They're considered unclean, and they had to wait seven days after the bleeding stopped in order for them to be able to offer sacrifice. They were considered unclean for seven days. It was a symbolic reminder in the Mosaic Law of sin. But because of her issue, because her bleeding had not stopped for 12 years, she was considered perpetually unclean. She could not enter into the temple to offer sacrifices. She could not go to her local synagogue. Everything she touched as a woman who was bleeding would be considered unclean. People could not touch the things that she touched because they would become unclean. They wouldn't be able to go to the synagogue to worship either. She couldn't touch you. You couldn't touch her. If she had a family or had a husband, there was separation for 12 long years. And this woman would not uh, undoubtedly have faced ostracism by the people. This would be seen alongside of her, second only to the disease of leprosy. So she would be shunned. Stay away, because you cannot touch me, and you cannot touch anything that I am going to touch, because I will be considered unclean. I can't go to the synagogue if I touch the same things you touched. So she um, undoubtedly had a reputation. Secondly, she had no hope at that time of healing until Jesus came, had endured much at the hands of many physicians. She's not helped at all, but had rather grown worse. She saw doctor after doctor after doctor, and none was any help whatsoever. You know, in those days, they didn't have some of the medical advances that we have today. You know, some of their cures, according to the Talmud, the Talmud is the Jewish body, written body of civil and ceremonial laws. They listed two Cures, at least, for her condition. For a woman who has bleeding, one of the cures is to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and in a cotton bag in the winter. That will heal you. Or it would involve carrying around a barley corn kernel that had been found in the dung of a white female donkey. Now, I'm sure there were all sorts of other doctors that had other cures. Snake oil salesmen, among people who had well-meaning cures. This will work for you. You know, it reminds me sometimes, you know, sometimes places, you know, my mother gets sick, sometimes as sick as a kid, you know. All sorts of, I don't know what it is in that soup that would boil for three hours. There's stones and there's roots and there's all sorts of things. I have no idea. It's supposed to make you feel better. It made me feel better after I finished it. She had endured much at the hands of many physicians, and she had no hope at that time. Thirdly, she was poor. The Bible says that she had spent all that she had. She was destitute. She was financially at the bottom of the barrel. No money, no friends, no hope until Jesus came. She had nothing the world would look upon. No status, no money, no health. And you remember in those days, when you were sick, If you had a disability or you were sick, you were seen by the people of that day as somebody who was either being punished by God or some reason had come upon you, this sickness. It must have been because you had sinned in some way. That was the prevailing belief. So you can imagine the people of that day. Stay away from me because something you've done caused your bleeding, and maybe you won't repent of your sin, and that's why you're continually bleeding. So she was just shunned, and she had no hope. The bottom of the pit, and she comes to Jesus. But the thing that she does have is she has faith in Jesus. Verse 27 tells us, After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I touch his garments, I will get well. She believed in the healing power of Jesus. The Bible says she came up in the crowd. You can imagine thousands of people in here. She was pushing her way through the thousands of people, causing them ceremonially to become unclean, but she didn't care. Can imagine, maybe it might be today to show up on the news like somebody's pushing everybody around and they've, they've got measles. She came up through the crowd just to be healed because she believed in the power of Jesus. Now, just to be clear, Jesus healed people who had faith. Jesus healed people who didn't have faith. We just saw that when he cast out thousands of demons from the demoniac. We saw Jesus healing People who didn't have faith in him will see him raise a little girl from the dead who couldn't even exercise faith because she was dead. Jesus healed people who believed in him, who didn't believe in him. He healed people who had faith in him and those who didn't have faith in him. But God had a special plan for this woman. After 12 years of suffering... 12 years of spending all her money, seeing doctor after doctor, having cure after cure that she would try, she touched him. And the Bible says, verse 29, immediately the flow of blood had dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Mark uses that word over and over again. There's no waiting period, no rehabilitation period, no sort of Time delay in her healing. For the most part, Jesus's miracles were immediate in their healing. That's how the Bible presents the miracles of Jesus as immediate, instantaneous healings. And Jesus knew immediately. He perceived power proceeding from him. He turned. Who touched my garments? Now, don't think, don't think to yourself, Jesus didn't know. No, Jesus knew. I believe Jesus very well knew who had touched his garments. But he uses this question so that the woman would be drawn out, so she would come out. It's like God in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, when Adam and Eve had sinned against God, and they clothed themselves, and they hid, it says. And God is walking through the garden, and this is what he says. He says, where are you? It's not as if God didn't know where they were. God knew where they were but he wanted to draw them out. And likewise, Jesus asked, who touched my garments? And the disciples, they're clueless. They don't know what's going on. They're saying, Jesus, all these people are pressing against you and you're saying, who touched you? Me, him, him, I, we all touched you. What are you saying? And he looked around and saw the woman who had done this. And this woman comes, fear and trembling, and she confesses the whole truth to Jesus of her desperation. It was me. I've been bleeding for 12 years, and I touched you so I could be healed. Now, Jesus wasn't upset. He wasn't perturbed. He wasn't bothered. No. In fact, this is what he says to her, and this is very telling. Number one, he says to her, "'Daughter, your faith has made you well.'" Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. He says, Daughter. Now, this is the first time, and I think the only time, that Jesus addresses somebody in a familial term in a way like this Daughter. Why does he address her this way? Because the next statement tells us, Your faith has made you well. All right? Now, when physical healing takes place, the word is usually aeomai. eomai. That is the word Mark uses when somebody is healed of an affliction. When it says she was healed of her affliction, that is the word that is used there. But this word... When Jesus says, your faith has made you well, the word is sozo, which is a word that is used when it relates to somebody being saved. When someone is being saved, in other words, Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has saved you, has saved your soul, has brought you salvation. Go in peace and be physically healed of your affliction as well. Not only did her bleeding stop, but the bleeding of her heart was healed as well, and she became a child of God. He calls her daughter. That term is going to be used of those who have a familial relationship with Jesus. Jesus goes on his way. As you can think, imagine to yourself, here he's answering the call of Jairus, a very important official, and he is a man who has a mission to heal this man's daughter. And up comes this woman, a woman who has nothing that society would offer, and she comes and interrupts his, his plan, so to speak. But Jesus turns and he ministers to her, finds out who she is, heals her of her affliction, calls her daughter and affirms her salvation. You know how many of us, how many of us, if we were in a situation like that, and somebody has a need, something's happened to them, we'd drive right by, we'd walk right by. I'm so busy, I've got so much on my plate, I don't have time for this. I don't have time to stop. A little girl is about to die. I've got places to go. I've got things to do. I've got kids to cart around. I've got plans for today. Somebody comes in to your life, and you don't even see it because of our focus on the task rather than our focus on people. Through eyes of compassion, Jesus sees this woman, and he doesn't look down on her. He doesn't prejudge her. He doesn't say anything that would lead us to think that he thinks differently of her than of Jairus' daughter, for both of them have deep needs. He doesn't look at them as not good enough for her, not pure enough, not holy enough. Oh, I don't associate with people like that. They might be a bad influence. I never stop to do that or help so-and-so or whatever it might be. Is that you? Is that me? Well, Jesus doesn't. With his compassionate heart and his eyes of compassion, he heals this lady, tells her she's saved. And this continuing story happens that while he was still speaking, verse 35, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Now, this woman coming to Jesus was by means no accident. It was, I believe she came to delay the whole process so that the daughter could die. Why? Because all the glory would go to God when Jesus would raise her from the dead. Jesus would be even more glorified, and his power would be even more displayed when his comforting words would come, and he says to them, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And then what he does he do? He takes three, the three who are closest in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He takes them along with the parents to go, it says he allowed no one else to come, and in verse 38, they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and the people loudly weeping and wailing. Now, just so you understand, the context of funerals in those days is completely different than the context of funerals in our day. In our day, you go to a funeral, you go to a funeral home or a memorial service, they'll tell you, I tell people, if you could kindly turn off your cell phones and you come up and shh, you know, and people are sniffling and you give Kleenex and there's all sorts of things like that. In those days, it was nothing like that. You wouldn't have, you know, some Fanny Crosby song that would be solemn and somber. Funerals in that culture were loud, they were clamoring and noisy. There were three particular ways that were prescribed for people who would mourn those who had passed away. There was the tearing of clothes, there was the wailing and crying, and there were flute players. Those would be the three particular ways. First of all, there would be the tearing of clothes, all right? So what you would do, if you were in those days, you go down, and this is not, you can tear your clothes any old way. The, the Talmud had 39 different stipulations, regulations by which you could tear your clothes. You had to tear your clothes properly. If you were the mother or the father of a daughter, you had to tear your clothes immediately over the heart. All right, and you can't, you can't, you can't tear your clothes by this little, you know, little rip either. That doesn't count. The hole had to be big enough for you to stick your fist through the hole of the tear of your clothes. Now, if you're a friend of the family or some relative other than the mother and father, you had to tear it near the heart. It didn't have to be uh, over the heart, but it had to be big enough for you to stick your fist through that hole. And then you couldn't sew it up right away. If you sewed it up, it had to be large, loose stitches so that somebody could see that you were mourning somebody and that hole was still there. For women, they would tear their undergarments and then they'd wear their undergarment backwards so the hole would be on the back. You had to tear your clothes the right way. And you had to tear, everybody teared their clothes. You attend a funeral, you tore your clothes. For those of you, this would be a big opportunity. You know, you go to your closet, that ugly sweater that Uncle Ben gave you, you take it out, rip, to, you know, you could have the opportunity to get rid of it. This is the first way they express their grief. Secondly, you had to hire a professional woman whaler. All right? A professional woman whaler, and this was not a sniffle-sniffle. This was a shriek, a wail, a cry of anguish. And if you were poor, you had to hire at least one. But if you were wealthy, you had to hire as many relative to how many? how much money you had. So you had though, these whalers that would bear. Jairus likely had a number of whalers that were there. They were weeping and wailing. and they get to know your family, too. That's what they do. They get to know your family who had died in the past, you know, and they would mention these people's names. Oh, you know, sad Uncle Ben, he dies. Oh, and, and, you know, Auntie so-and-so, and and there's, oh, it's so sad that so-and-so died about this. And they would wail, and they would shriek, and they would cry out loud. And you had to hire at least one of these women. there. So there was a lot of commotion. Thirdly, you had to hire flute players. Flute players. I mean, and and I like flute music, but these flute players... You might think, oh, that's pleasant. I like flute music, but these flute players, if you were poor, you had to hire at least two. Why? Because the flute players would come, and they would play, but they would never be allowed to play together. They had to play in dissonance so that there would be just noise. It's like giving a two-year-old a keyboard with another player, and then clong, 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 clong. You know, that's how it is. The more noise, the more ruckus, the more wailing. You can imagine the whole thing. Clang, clang, blah, wail, oh, sorry, Uncle Don, or whatever. You know, it's all sorts of noise that would be there. People tearing their clothes and crying and wailing and all sorts of... That's why it says in verse 39, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Now, verse 40 is very telling. Verse 40 is very telling. Verse 40 says, they began laughing at him. Now, if you're truly weeping over somebody who is passed away, to just turn around and laugh, well, you could tell these were hired hands. They began laughing at him. And this word laughing communicates a a scornful, mocking type of laughter that communicates they thought Jesus was a fool. This kind of derisive laughter, they would laugh at Jesus for saying, this girl is asleep. They would begin laughing at him. The Bible tells us that Jesus put them all out, meaning that he commanded them to get out. And he took the three of his disciples, he took the parents, they went into the room, they took the little girl's hand, and they said, "Delitha Kum, little girl, or literally it means little lamb, little lamb, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years old. Her spirit, in Luke 8 says, her spirit returned and she rose immediately. No rehab, no physical therapy, no sluggishness. In fact, that walk, walk, she began to walk. It pictures a, a pacing around. I don't know if you have any little kids that just like walk back and forth, walk back and forth, and it starts to irritate you as you sit down. This is the walking that it is, this idea. They were amazed. This daughter of theirs had been raised from the dead. Not only was Jesus one who could command the winds and the waves, not only was Jesus one who could cast out thousands of demons, but Jesus could not only heal a woman who had a chronic illness, but one who could raise the dead to life. And the compassion of Jesus was shown without prejudice to the rich, to the poor, to the accepted, to the rejected, to the one who is ceremonially clean, to the one who is unclean, to the one who society would look upon and accept, to the one who society would not even want to touch. But Jesus, his compassion was displayed indiscriminately upon people. That is the power of our Jesus. That is the heart of our God. So let me close with a passage. I'll show you in Matthew chapter 12. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verse 20 and 21, there's a passage there that displays the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ and his compassion. For the text says, and it's a quotation that comes out of Isaiah 42, verse 3, it says, Matthew twelve twenty, A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out till he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. What does that mean? A battered reed he will not break off. Shepherds in those days would be out in the fields, and what they would do is they'd find a reed, and they'd take that reed, and they'd put holes in it, and turn it into a flute. And they would play that flute to pass the time so that the sheep would know, but over time their saliva would get into that reed, and that reed would become soft, and what they would do, it couldn't play anymore. Oftentimes shepherds would just break it, throw it away, get another reed. The other illustration is a smoldering wick he will not put out. Imagine a candle. Many of you, perhaps you celebrate your birthday, and you blow out the birthday candles, and there's always a couple of candles that are smoldering, and the thing is still burning and the smoke is filling there. what do you do? You take your fingers and you snuff it out, don't you? The Bible tells us that God is not like that. God is not like that. Because we are often the people who are down. We're the people who are discouraged. We're the people who have problems. We're like that battered reed. And when we don't play the music that we wish we would play as we did originally, God doesn't just break us and throw us away. Or maybe your life is like one that is really not excited about God and you struggle and you're not excited about life. Things don't seem to be going your way, the way that would bring you great joy and you're like a smoldering wick and all you can give off is this little spark that never seems to go out but causes a lot of smoke. God doesn't say, You know what? You're not a flame. I'm just going to snuff you out. God is a compassionate God who doesn't snap you in half, who doesn't snuff you out, who doesn't say, well, let me find somebody else who is on fire for me. Let me find somebody else who is playing beautiful music. No, God is not a God that is like that. He is a compassionate God who wants to restore, who wants to heal. Whether you're a person who is struggling with health issues or struggling with employment issues or struggling with personal issues because of conflict within your own heart, because of conflict within your own life, because of sin that has just so very much gotten you down, God is a God who desires to restore that life, to bring life back to you, to cause that candle to flame once again. God is the one who can do all of those things, and it is compassion and mercy. It matters no much what the world will think of you. What matters is that God is a God of compassion to the rich, to the poor, to the accepted, to the rejected, to men and women, to adults, to children, whoever it may be. But ultimately, God is the one who wants to say to you, he wants to say to you, your faith has saved your soul. That's what he wants to say. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for Jesus who desires, Lord, to meet our greatest needs. Lord, if he can raise the dead to life, Still the storm cast out demons. Father, we desire his help in our lives. Father, you know the struggles that people face. Many of these are parents who are here who have children, the struggles they have in raising their children to love you and the wisdom that they need, the struggles with their own heart of anger and patience or their own sin that they struggle with, the desire to be a godly example, and yet, Father, many times we fail. Or some here who struggle with health issues or employment issues or relationship issues, whatever it may be, O God, by your compassionate power, we pray that you would cause their heart to flame for you, that you would restore them, and that you would carry them each and every day that you, Father, in your compassionate grace, would shower them with strength for the days to come. May they know of your great love, your patience for them, and may you, Father, call them, Lord, to yourself if they do not know you. May they find true peace, true rest. In Jesus' name, amen.